Well, if you're new to Hope Fellowship Church, it might be helpful to you to know, and we already mentioned this from the jump this morning, we're continuing today in a series on 1 Samuel, and it's somewhat customary for us to preach through the Bible, chapter by chapter, book by book, not necessarily in order of books, but it's rooted in this deeply held conviction we have about the Bible. We believe that the Bible is authoritative and sufficient for helping us define both what we believe, our doctrine, and how to live, our practice, that the Bible is authoritative and sufficient for our doctrine and our practice. And so the best thing we could do Sunday after Sunday after Sunday from this place is lead you to what the Bible says about any given topic, whatever it covers in the particular chapter that we're preaching through. And so this morning as we travel through 1 Samuel 13, we'd just love for you to keep that in mind about what's going on and why we're doing what we're doing. You see, we're not seeking to be novel or creative, not seeking to get up here and bring you my best ideas that I had walking around my neighborhood yesterday, but instead of saying new things, we endeavor to say old things really, really well and in compelling ways to help you see the beauty, the glory, the majesty of Jesus, and in hopes that you'll be drawn to him more than you'll ever be drawn to a personality, a style of preaching, a person. Our hope is that you'll be drawn to Jesus by what we do from this place. So the Bible informs both our doctrine and our practice. It informs our beliefs and how we are to live from day to day. In addition, I thought this morning it might be helpful at this juncture in 1 Samuel, chapter 13, we'll be in together. I thought it might be helpful to peel back from the text that we'll be looking at just to get an overview and kind of get our bearings about where we are within the biblical story, the biblical narrative, what's actually happening here as we get to 1 Samuel 13, what story is unfolding, what story is God telling both about himself and about the story that he's telling in and through the lives of his people. It's helpful at times to get a sense of where you are. And that's what we want to do this morning. It's like standing in the middle of a giant maybe shopping mall, maybe on the T or amusement park, and coming across that giant map there in the middle of the walkway. And you and your family are the only ones there, and you want to kind of pretend that you don't really need the map, but it's pretty obvious that you need the map, right? And so you're looking at the map, and you're trying to figure out where to go, and you find that little, way too little text the copy that says you are here. And that's what we want to do this morning before we launch into 1 Samuel 13 is figure out where we are and then consider where we're going. We want to figure out where we are. So no shame here. We want to situate ourselves well within the broader narrative, the broader story of scripture. Because as we'll see in the next three chapters, one event unfolds into the next and to the next and to the next. And we want to not only feel the significance and weight of these events for application in our own lives, but we also want to get a good sense of what God is doing through 1 Samuel. We want to see the story that he is telling. So briefly, in sum, throughout the Old Testament, prior to the historical books that we're in now with 1 Samuel, God has covenanted with his people, Israel. And he's making a tightly held promise that he will be their God and that they will be his people. You see this wording all throughout the Old Testament, that God will be their God and that they be his people. And we see different expressions of this same covenant promise made to Adam and Eve. We see it later with Noah on through Abraham and Moses, God continually reaffirming his covenant faithfulness, his love toward his people. And alongside, we see that God's people have a perpetual problem. They're often unable to hold up their end of the bargain. 
Time and time again, Israel is found doubting. They're found faithless, and yet God remains relentlessly faithful to his people. The Old Testament teaches, a lot of, teaches us a lot about God's character in this way. While some would want to posit the Old Testament God as a God of wrath and vengeance and the New Testament God as a God of grace, we say no. And we spy out in this narrative, this story that's unfolding in the Old Testament, this God of covenant love, relentlessly faithful to his people. And that's good news for us, that God has been relentlessly faithful to his people. Because if he has been before, we have good reason to believe that he will continue being faithful now. We gain great encouragement from a covenantly faithful God in the Old Testament. So we do see that God is holy. He'll uphold his righteousness. He can't abide with sin. He'll judge sin. And yet, there's grace to be found. And where we are within the biblical narrative, the biblical story, God has pursued his people through the wilderness and into the promised land. Underneath the heading and the jurisdiction of judges who have led Israel's people, encouraging them to uphold their piece of the bargain, to uphold their part of the covenant. And now these judges who have led for so long are giving way to a monarchy. And kings are beginning to lead the people of Israel. And we've seen that transition happen before our eyes as recently as last week. So in 1 Samuel 12, you see that Samuel, who serves as the last among the judges, now gives way to Saul who's installed as king over God's people, the people of Israel. And this is the transition that we've been watching take place. So over time, the rule of the judges gives way to kings, and we see that transition. And we've seen in weeks past that Israel wished to be led by a king, but for impure motives. The reason Israel wanted a king was so that they could be like other nations, that they were watching, being led under the jurisdiction of a king. We want to be like them. And not only that, Israel was putting their hope and their trust in the idea, the aspiration, the hope that an earthly ruler, an earthly king would be able to provide for them the protection and the safety and the comfort and the confidence that they needed. Their desires were impure. And despite their impure motives, God does grant them a king. King named Saul and tucked away in last week's passage Chapter 11, verse 15, is the description of the nation making Saul its king. And they rejoice at this development in their history. God has given them what they wanted. It quickly becomes evident that through God, though God is providing a king for Israel, Saul is not going to fulfill Israel's wildest dreams about what a king can do. Their plan is of their own making. It's short-sighted, and it will ultimately prove ina- inadequate. So merely having a king was not the solution for God's people. God will teach them that they didn't need a king. They need the right king. So it's why we've labeled, and it's not up in front of you anywhere, but we've called this series In Search of a King. This is Israel's plight, and it's been our plight too, In Search of a King. So we're standing at this great directional map. We know where we are. Israel's been granted this king that they long desire, and now we'll follow the arrows that are pointing to whichever way we should go. And biblically speaking, the way that we're going to go is always only ever toward Jesus. And so as we read through 1 Samuel and kind of look at where we should go, we're not going to look at Saul as king, as the destination. We're going to look through Saul to another king who is coming. And that king's named David, and we'll talk about him for several weeks And even then, we're not going to stop with David. We're going to trace the arrow through David, who is a prefiguring 
of yet another coming king, one who was born to die, save the world from its sins. And how beautiful will it be if we've timed this rightly that we get to talk about David prefiguring Jesus in Advent season this year as we celebrate the coming of this king who's come to deliver the world from its sins. These things considered at the end of last week's chapter, we see the terms of the covenant. God lays out, I am committed to you as a people. And here are the terms of that covenant. He says in chapter 12, 24 and 25, only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you will do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. So just prior to chapter 13, God lays out the terms of a covenant. Obey, I will be with you. I will lead, guide, direct you on your way. I have done great things for you, but if you still choose to do wickedly, you'll be swept away, both you and the king you thought would save you. And so with these things considered, we ask the question now, which way will Israel go? And the better question, which way will King Saul lead God's people? So that sets the scene for chapters 13 through 15, a bit of an on-ramp before we read our text today, but we'll talk about those chapters over the next few weeks. Today, we're going to look, if you'll turn in your Bible, if you have a copy of Scripture, to 1 Samuel chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible with you today, there's one underneath the seat in front of you uh, that you're welcome to use today. And if you don't own a Bible, we as a church would love to give you one. There's a stack of Bibles on the table in the back. Those are free uh, for the taking, or you could grab a Scripture journal that we mentioned earlier, uh, but we we would love for you to be looking at the text with us as we traverse 1 Samuel 13 together. I need to turn there myself because I've not done as you have done, so you're waiting on me. As we look at 1 Samuel, we'll see this emphasis in the text. We'll find the encouragement, we'll find encouragement to cultivate a growing sense of dependency on the Lord for all we need. Encouragement to cultivate a growing sense of dependency on the Lord for all that we need. So let's read, I'll read for us, follow along in 1 Samuel chapter 13. It says, Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul and Michmash and the hill, hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba. And the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of beth Aven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. 
So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw the people were scattering from me, that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I saw, I, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal. Now I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped at Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Oprah, to the land of Shul. Another company toward, turned toward Beth Huron. And another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make for themselves sword or spears. But let every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to pass, to the pass of Michmash. Pardon me. So we see here in 1 Samuel a lot to digest, a lot that's unfolding. We'll consider this text in two parts. First, we'll see in verses 1 through 15, an ill-timed sacrifice. This picture of Saul rushing to make this sacrifice, an ill-timed sacrifice in verses 1 through 15. And second, in verses 16 through 23, we'll see an ill-prepared people. An Israelite people not prepared for battle, an ill-prepared people. So we have an ill-timed sacrifice, we have an ill-prepared people. And we're watching Saul as he manages the people of Israel and leads them, attempting to do well by himself and by God in some sense, through battle in a rather ordinary way. So a few years into his reign as king here, Saul engages in battle very much as kings would have. He divides the army between himself and his oldest son, Jonathan. And ultimately, we see that though Jonathan, the text says, is responsible for the victory, that Saul sort of swoops in, becomes a bit boastful about what the Israelites have done here and taken down the Philistine garrison. Jonathan clearly leads the army, leads the battle, wins the victory, and yet Saul begins to take the credit. He's like that one guy in the group project that loves all the credit and does none of the work, right? Right? 
I see a few of you shifting in your seat. We know who you are. This is Saul taking all the credit for a battle that he did not lead nor fight. And here he is boasting, sort of putting himself out there. The front of his shirt may say, I'm the main character. And on the back, it may say, look at me. Naturally, this whole situation and the garrison being defeated riles the Philistines up. They begin to assemble in the text an army to retaliate. And we note here a reversal in the descriptor and the posture. The things said of the Philistines are once things that have been said of the Israelites. And we have a sort of turn in fortunes. And what's going on? Way back in the book of Genesis, chapter 22, verse 17, there's a promise from God to Abraham concerning God's people. He promises Abraham that his descendants will be as numerous as the grains of sand on the seashore. And yet here, verses 4 and 5, we see that the author of 1 Samuel applies that very same descriptor not to the army of the Israelites, but to the growing number of Philistines who are coming to fight them. A descriptor once reserved for God's people in the health of their day, now applied to an enemy army. We see things are beginning to change. The tide is beginning to shift. In addition, where when once confident and sure of the promises of their covenant-keeping God, Israel felt emboldened and felt safe, Here, in this text, they're now found trembling at the side of the Philistine army. They're watching what's occurring before their eyes. Many retreat and go elsewhere. The rest tag along tribbling. Some hide in caves. You see disorderliness afoot. These are all signs that things among the people of God are amiss. Something isn't right. And to drive that point home even further in the text, upon seeing the sad state of affairs among the people that he is leading, Saul now springs into action, disregarding instructions from both Samuel and distrusting the Lord in the process. So let's look at verses 8 through 13 more closely. I'll read them again. Verse 8 says that he waited, Saul waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. And so Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he had finished the offering, offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel showed up. He came. And Saul went out to meet him. And then they have this discussion. Samuel asked, Saul, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and you didn't come when you said you would, that the Philistines had mustered this army before us, I said, now the Philistines will come down against us, and I have not yet sought the favor of the Lord. And note Saul's wording here as he gets anxious about the situation in front of him. Moving out before Samuel, moving out before the Lord, Saul says that he forced himself into position to now go and make this sacrifice that he thought would preserve the people, he thought would protect Israel. As he assesses disorderliness around him, Saul, rather than waiting for Samuel, goes ahead and he offers this burnt offering, part of a ritual and sacrifice customarily offered by those in a priestly role. So he's moving outside the bounds of what he's ordered to do, allowed to do, and now fulfilling a priestly role in offering this sacrifice. And on the one hand, we we can be sympathetic to his train of thought. All the reasons that Saul offers make sense. The Philistines are a formidable sight to behold, and the people of Israel are now cowering inside of them. 
Saul sees all of this and he remembers, I have not sought the Lord's favor. And the logic here seems airtight. The sacrifice needs to be made and then God will give us favor and we'll be able to vanquish the Philistine army. Saul's motives seem for the most part pure, except for one detail. Several years earlier, as Samuel was anointing Saul to be king over the people of Israel, he included in his instructions to Saul these words, found just a few chapters ago when we preached through 1 Samuel 10, verses 7 and 8. Samuel said to Saul, now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do because God will be with you. Then, in verse 8, he says, go down before me to Gilgal, where the scene is taking place. And behold, Samuel says to Saul, I am coming down to you to offer the burnt offerings, to offer the peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and I will show you what to do. Samuel says, wait. Wait for me and I'll show you what to do. Because he's the Lord's messenger throughout this entire episode, we take it for certain that Samuel's words carry the same weight. That they are the Lord's instructions. Wait. Saul's misstep then is not that he is overly concerned or caring for the people of Israel. Saul's misstep here is pride. Demonstrated in his refusal to wait on Samuel and thereby wait on the Lord for deliverance. So we see here that even easily defensible actions can be accursed if they're done in disobedience. The call here for Saul is not to get the job done whatever the cost. It's to wait on the Lord and for his appointed messenger to show up. The call for Saul is to trust, to depend on the Lord in ways he is not willing So we get a sense here of the pride that characterizes Saul's action here in response when he's rebuked by Samuel. This question, what have you done? In verses 10 through 14, Saul offers the burnt offering and note the sacrifice per Samuel's earlier instructions actually includes both a burnt and a peace offering. And yet when Saul moves in front of the Lord, moves in front of Samuel, he only ever gets to make the burnt offering. He doesn't even make it to the peace offering. We get the sense that he would not have had to wait forever. If he only made it through this burnt offering and then Samuel showed up, how much longer really would he have had to wait? Depend on the Lord. Keep his commandments. His help is not far from you, Saul. So he makes part of the sacrifice and Samuel arrives asking a pointed question. What have you done? And the pointedness of this question, the pointedness of this inquiry does harken back and reminds us of a pointed inquiry elsewhere in Scripture. Our minds race to Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. So we watch this episode unfold in the garden. And we see the Lord there walking around in the cool of the garden. And he comes across Adam and Eve, now clothed, ashamed of their nakedness, aware of their sin. We remember that pointed ask and that pointed question, what have you done? Who told you? Who told you? What have you done? And this is likened to this request, this question that Samuel now asks Saul. What have you done? 
And moving out before the Lord now and moving out before his instructions, you've sent the whole plan awry. Everything's off the rails. And similar to the response of our first parents in that garden encounter, rather than humbly admitting his mistake, we see here that Saul begins to make excuses. He blames Samuel for, being, for not being on time, firstly. And then he points to what seems obvious. His troops were leaving. The Philistines were amassing a great army in front of them, preparing for battle. And what's more, Saul sort of clothes his excuses in religious language, doesn't he? I remembered that I had not sought the favor of the Lord. And this is why I did what I did. This is why I did what I did. Sensing they were in danger and that he had not sought the favor of the Lord, he moved to make the sacrifice. And yet, the painful and the stark reality of the situation is that Saul could not, even in this one instance, and hear this, he could not be patient. He could not wait for the Lord. He could not wait for the Lord, and in so doing, according to Samuel's rebuke here in the text, Saul failed to keep the Lord's commandments. He didn't do what the Lord had asked. The decision we see here in the text is costly. The pronouncement made on Saul's life and leadership is trajectory-altering in terms of the narrative and the story that's unfolding. Everything changes from this point on for Saul. Saul's kingdom will not go on, verses 13 and 14. There is another man, another leader, another king whom the Lord will exalt. In addition, Israel is effectively still in search of a king. The very thing that they wanted, the very thing that Saul came to do, the role that he came to fulfill is now going to be vacated. Saul's disobedience is costly, and it's costly in other ways too. We see more immediately that God's people here in the end of the text are left without help or defense in the battle that lies ahead. Part two of the text, we see an ill-equipped people. Look at verses 15 through 23 with me. 15 through 23, and Samuel arose and went up to Gilgal, and the rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army, and they went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600, and Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them stayed in Gibeah of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies, one turned toward Oprah to the land of Shul, another company toward turned toward Beth Horon, and another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim, toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land for Israel, of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves sword or spear. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. I'd planned only to read those complicated names once, and I've bitten myself, right? (laughs) So you have this battle that's about to be launched. And the people of Israel are starting to amass themselves against this growing Philistine army. And they lack one critically important feature of warfare. Weapons. They're standing before this Philistine army on the back end of Saul's mismanaged sacrifice. 
ill-prepared for the very thing that they've come to do. And this is all evidence of Saul's incompetence as a leader, his unwillingness to see things through, his unwillingness to wait for the Lord. This is all evidence of the trajectory that Saul's been headed down for a while now. And it's all coming to fruition here right in front of us. We see Saul readying his small army for battle. And again, the episode uh, is full of allusions back to other Old Testament stories. If you're familiar with your Old Testament Bible and, or Old Testament portion of the Bible and stories throughout Judges, particularly in the beginning of Judges, we see a frequent allusion to Judges 6 through 8 and the Battle of Gideon. And we see, for lack of a better or more time, we won't go into this too much, but we see frequent illusion and frequent interchange of role reversal, interchange of roles and responsibilities between God's people and their enemies. The Israelites are relatively small in number. The Philistines are employing here a far more effective military strategy. And the Israelites lack this key component, the weapons. They have none. And more than that, the text also indicates that the Israelites not only lack weapons, but they're dependent upon the Philistines now for whatever they can come by. That they need to go down and sharpen their weapons and they'll have to pay for it. All of this highlights both Saul's incompetency and Israel's vulnerability. And over time, we'll see in the weeks ahead that God, and good news for us, he will continue demonstrating his covenant faithfulness to his people in spite of Saul's poor leadership. And that story will begin to unfold. For Saul, his disobedience becomes a hallmark of his tenure as leader over God's people. We see two examples of it here, an ill-timed sacrifice and an ill-prepared people. This is the rotten fruit of Saul's disobedience. An ill-timed sacrifice and an ill-prepared people. His story is both tragic and it's cautionary. So it's tragic on the one hand as we watch Saul's life kind of dismantle before us, and yet, peeling back from the narrative, we might treat and read the story as a cautionary tale as well. You see, we might recognize in Saul tendencies not unfamiliar to us. An insistence on doing things our own way. A refusal to wait on the Lord. A growing distrust in God and diminishing dependence on God for what we need. And yet our lives are wholly dependent on this holy God for life and breath and everything, as Paul once quoted. We see in this obstinacy, this posturing ourselves over against God, the allure and the enticement of sin. And so when pride like Saul's rears its head as we're reading through scripture and the biblical narrative, it's not opportunity for us to read this as a story and then look down our noses at Saul. But rather, scripture presents for us a mirror into which we might look and evaluate whether the same sort of pride manifests in our own hearts. Where's this same sort of distrust in the ways, the works, the plans of God manifest in my own life on a day-to-day basis. Scripture provides for us a mirror for us to investigate whether this sort of pride lurks within us. Despite what we may think or what we might have been convinced of down the line at some point, our spiritual enemy does not have a lot of new tricks. By and large, it's the same old game. Sin is manifest in fundamentally the same way as it manifests in Genesis 3 rooted in this deep desire of ours to move in front of God, to put ourselves one step ahead of God, to become like God, 
to become God ourselves, or at the very least to erect what we might call functional saviors in our lives, things we persistently run to, thinking that it will provide the relief, the comfort, the safety that we need. Banking our trust on things, on perceived security in the things of this world, rather than the safety granted to us by the author of our salvation. This is us. You see, sin is intrinsically bound up with our desires. The more we have of it, the more we want of it. The more we get of it, the more we think we can't live without it. And the more we chase after it, truthfully, the less satisfying it becomes. It isn't strange then that many of us walk through church doors each Sunday and are found wilting. Enslaved to sin, you see, our souls shrivel. We exhaust ourselves on things in this life that overpromise and they underdeliver. Sin can leave us tired, and sin can leave us soul weary. It's funny, as I was kind of closing the door on prep for this sermon on Friday and thinking through what portions we would cover, I kind of had a day, one of those days. I, I hear a laugh. Were, were you were with me. I had a day on Friday. One of those days, it was the kind of day I think I told somebody on Friday where I attempted to do something and then that task would require five more before it. And then those five more would require, five, you know what I'm talking, I see nods in the room, I don't have to belabor this point. It was one of those days. Tried to log into an online account, four levels of authentication to prove to the computer that I'm the one that's real, right? By the end of it, I was like emailing Gmail, like, I, I don't know my childhood phone number from 1994. I do know my mother's favorite flower. Will 50% credit get me in? You know, like, it was one of those days. Just growing frustrated with the process. Dan, bless his heart, Dan Chow comes to help us on Fridays. Friday, he's in the office helping us with admin tasks, and he prints out the worship guides that you're holding. Every Friday, faithfully does it. Our printer does not faithfully uphold its end of the deal. <laughs> so he comes in, tries to print. I think it displays the message too, and it says on the screen, nope, not today. And I'm like, all right, we're not doing that. And so he fights with the printer all day, and I'm thinking about that. And I finally leave to go in a, uh, to an appointment, and I'm like, oh, finally, release. We're going to go to something that's set in time. And I run into like two miles of traffic off of Davis Square, of all places, because on Friday in the middle of the day is the best time to replace every single sidewalk in Davis Square that's ever been laid, right? <laughs> Stacks of bricks everywhere, traffic, and my house is like four minutes away, and I'm in, you know, it's one of those days. And all of these things within the scheme of our lives and the, and the weights and the burdens that we're carrying into this room today, all of these things are sort of trivial, Right? But I sensed in that moment how those types of things can be so provoking, right? If I have an impatience issue, two miles of traffic off of Davis Square are going to provoke that impatience issue. If I have an anger issue, Gmail is going to get it, right? They're provoking. And I remember in those moments, and I think about this frequently, and, and we ought to, but I think about how in those moments we're so often tempted to blame shift. Just like Saul. I'm not impatient. They need to do sidewalks at midnight. Right? Paige, I know I was short with you. I'm hungry. Blame shifting. 
finding a way out from underneath who we really are. And what the Lord is continually calling us to do is face up to the reality. There is this thing that lurks inside of us, deceitful in nature, that will lay us flat if we're not attentive to it. It's difficult at times to manage day-to-day affairs on the normal days. And here we are living out our days, as Matt mentioned last week, as exiles in the crosshairs of a spiritual enemy who wants to wreck it all. If I just had a normal day, it would be difficult in varying ways. And yet layers added to this mean that there's a spiritual enemy who is on the prowl. And he's complicating every last thing along the way. And this is what we're dealt with as those who have committed to follow Christ. And so the question is, knowing sin persists in this way, what do we do? What do we do? Well, I have a modest proposal. And here it is. In light of all of this that we're trying to navigate and balance, I propose that we, the Holy Spirit helping us, God's grace fueling us, and Christ's body, the local church, strengthening us, that we seek together to cultivate a growing, a deepening, a deepening sense of God dependency in our lives for everything, for all we need. That there's nothing in my life and your life that's out from underneath his purview, that I could commit everything over and over and over to him. And what does this look like practically? It doesn't mean that I spend, maybe it does mean I spend three hours in prayer, but if it doesn't mean that, then it could mean that I spend five. Martin Luther once quipped that he had so much to do in a day that he couldn't not spend three hours praying. We were overseas with our ministry partners a couple of weeks ago and prayer walking with them around the city and it's sort of this like eyes open praying as you go sort of thing that's kind of unique in that context. And I remember listening to our our brothers and sisters who labor in hard to reach places as they prayed and they would pray in this way most often. They would frequently say, Lord, we commit these people to your hands. We give them to you. Spying out in themselves a limitation an inability to pull off what they know the Lord has called them to do and they're trusting that the Lord will do work that only he can do. What would it look like in the day-to-day? Lord, I'm committing this day to you. I am in traffic, but here's a perfect opportunity. I'm committing this task to you. I'm committing this relationship to you. I'm committing this conversation to you. It's yours. Lead me through it. We cultivate this growing and deepening sense of God dependency in our lives with the Spirit's help and with the encouragement from brothers and sisters in Christ who love you and who care for you and who are dogged in their concern for your good and your joy, we resolve to be those who won't step out one step before the Lord attempting to manage things our own way. Let's pray like Moses prayed. In Exodus 33, when he said, oh Lord, you've called me to this great thing, but if you aren't going, then I'm not interested. If you're not there, I'm not interested in going. And what's the rub? Why is this so difficult for a people like us? Consider your day to day. Throughout work, throughout school, when you go home, how often are you being encouraged 
to confess your limitations? How often are you be, being encouraged to put on display your insufficiency? To confess your neediness? Unless I'm just not up to, on, on the latest business management fads, your last performance review did not include a substantial section on how keenly aware you are of all of your failures and limitations and the ways you might actually threaten to make your company go under. That probably wasn't included. Just a substantial section on telling us how bad you are. Rather, we're pressured in manifold ways day to day to prove ourselves over and over again to prove ourselves. And that's to say nothing of the performance reviews that we give ourselves. This tape that's replaying in our minds constantly day after day, speaking lies of unworthiness and inadequacy and incompetency. It's true, we are our own worst critics. And that constant nagging we sense for believers, they are words warring against the reality of who you are in Christ. Mom, dad in the room, it's a grind, isn't it? Parenting is an endless collection of final exams that you wouldn't have known how to study for if you tried. Some days it feels like if everyone is fed and makes it to bed at night, that is a win. Bathing optional. Mom, dad, look at me. You are approved in Christ. You are approved in Christ. Your worth, your value is not measured on a scoreboard, parenting highs and lows. You can let Instagram have the highlight reels and you throw yourself continually on the mercy of Jesus. Over and over and over. Student in the room, those midterms were no joke. And the finals won't be either. And we see it on your face. You are not convinced that there is such a thing as a social life. That's not a thing. But it is, I promise. And the weight you feel right now, the stress, the pressure that adds up because of where you are and what accomplishments got you to where you are, the expectations of family members that you may feel right now, the institution's name that's emblazoned across your student ID, all of that can be a snare, can't it? Tempting you to displace God at the forefront of your mind and at the center of your affections and as the source of your approval. But hear me, friend, you are approved of in Christ. To those of us getting it out day by day in the workplace or at home, among roommates, among without family, in spaces where square footage is disproportionate to dollar signs, friendship is hard to come by. For those given to the same sorts of temptation over and over and over and over again. And yet see the beauty of Jesus compelling you to something more. For those who would confess loneliness and despair in this room, but who have found reason for hope. For those who are wondering, believer, you are approved of in Christ. And this is the proof that you put forth. Nothing else added to, nothing taken away, Christ's work done on your behalf. Life is made to be a proving ground and the stakes are made to seem high. And yet all the proof we ever need is to demonstrate that we belong 
is the proof that Christ came, lived this perfect life that we could not live, died this substitutionary death that we could not die, and he rose from the grave so that those who have been united to him by faith could live with him forever. Believer, this, the gospel is your glory, and it's the basis for your dependence on God, and it's an impetus for your obedience. For those here today who would not consider yourself a follower of Jesus, I want to say just to you, we are really glad that you're here. Week after week, you probably come and you hear these messages and you read these words with us, or perhaps this is the first time you've stepped place in a place like this in a really long time. We're really glad that you're here. And we're particularly glad that you would come and give part of your Sunday to sharing time with us. You may have questions about faith, questions about Christianity, questions about Jesus more specifically, and we would love to have that conversation. You'll find there on the Connect card we mentioned earlier, sort of check boxes or prompts to begin conversations like that here at Hope. But let me encourage you along these lines as well. That you might consider this morning that the barriers that stand between you and following Jesus aren't as insurmountable as they seem. Not as daunting as they seem right now. Truly apart from Christ, the weariness that you feel is cast in a different hue. Many around you here at Hope are familiar with a long list of questions that go with unsatisfying answers, with moral quandaries that never seem to work out in just the right way, the overwhelming thought of shaping morals and ethics in our daily lives according to what feels like an impossible standard. But as one who hopes you will see the beauty of what Christ has done for you, the invitation I want to extend to you It's not an invitation to more manageable rationale for the meaning of life, though I think there is some of that. It's not an invitation to pure moralism in that we're hoping that you shape up and do better. It's an invitation to Jesus himself and that you would be convinced today of your need for a savior because the sin that so desperately entangles us and ensnares us is sin that belongs to you as well. We pray you would find in Jesus what's beautiful and good and right and true, that if you're thirsty, you would come and drink, that if you're ensnared in sin that leads to death, that you would find in Jesus life, new life, eternal life, in the presence of the one whom we're learning to depend on for life and everything. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your wisdom, for your guidance. We pray, Father, that your word won't return void. We pray as a church that you would continue to help us, for your spirit's help to cultivate this sense of dependency on you. And Father, we thank you for the work that you'll continue to do in our lives, work that only you can do. Help us to trust you more, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.